Well, let's pray, and then we're going to look at Daniel chapter 4. Thou, O Lord, are exalted above the earth and above all other gods. And Lord, I pray that our hearts would continue to stay open in worship this morning as we have opened or as we have worshiped in song, as we have worshiped through prayer, and now as we worship through your word, God, I pray that our hearts would stay open and surrendered so that all that we do this morning would be an expression of worship for you. And so we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. Well, many years ago, a magnificent diamond was found in an African mine. And it was presented to the king of England to be mounted in his crown. The king sent it to Amsterdam right away to be cut, and it was put into the hands of an expert lapidary, the diamond cutter. For weeks, the diamond was studied. Drawings and models were made of this gem. Its quality, its defects, its lines of cleavage were all studied with the minutest care. And when the time came, the lapidary took the gem of priceless value and with his tools of the trade, he cut a little notch in it and then struck a hard blow and split the diamond in two. Now, to the untrained eye, this may have seemed reckless or even destructive, but it was neither. For this was one of the most skillful gem cutters in the world. And when he struck that diamond, it revealed the zenith of his skill, not the absence of his skill. For he did the one thing which would bring that gem to its most glorious shapeliness and radiance and jeweled splendor. That blow, which seemed to ruin the precious stone, it was in fact its perfect redemption. For out of those two halves came two magnificent gems which the skilled eye of the lapidary saw hidden in that rough, uncut stone. Sometimes God lets a stinging blow fall upon a person's life. And that soul cries out in agony. And in the moment, that strike seems harsh, like it's a painful mistake. But it is not. For God is the most skillful lapidary in the universe, and his people are his most precious possessions. Today we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 4, and in this passage, God's hand is going to come down hard and strike Nebuchadnezzar to break through his arrogant, independent, and self-sufficient spirit. Through Daniel over these last few chapters, God has repeatedly shown Nebuchadnezzar that God alone is on the throne of heaven. He alone is sovereign and raises up kings and removes them according to his purposes. 
Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man in the most powerful country in the, in the world at that time, but it was only because God had determined that it should be so. But that message, it just seemed to keep going over Nebuchadnezzar's head. He just didn't seem to get it. Time and again, the king would acquiesce and he would acknowledge that Daniel's God was impressive. He was powerful. He was a revealer of mysteries. And he would acknowledge that Daniel's God was one amongst many gods. But his pride would never allow him to bend the knee and submit to the God, to God as the Lord of heaven and earth. He just wouldn't bend the knee. So in today's passage, God warns Nebuchadnezzar that he is about to face the Lord's discipline. The king's refusal to humble himself and acknowledge God as the sovereign authority over the kingdoms of men has gone on long enough. Discipline is coming. Chapter 4 is told from Nebuchadnezzar's point of view. He is summarizing the events which he had experienced, events in which he had been removed from his throne, and events in which he finally recognizes the hand of the Lord and the discipline of the Lord. And now, having been restored back to his throne, he wants to share with his people the lessons he has learned so that they might join him in worshiping the God of heaven. And as we work our way through this chapter this morning, I want to point out six lessons, six truths about the Lord's discipline. Hebrews 12 reminds us that the Lord is still uses discipline today, not in anger. The Lord doesn't discipline in anger, but he disciplines as a loving father for our good. Hebrews 12 says he does it so that we might share in his holiness. Therefore, each one of us may experience at different times in our lives the Lord's discipline. And hopefully, these six lessons will help us to recognize it and cooperate with it so that the Lord doesn't have to lengthen or intensify His discipline in order to get our attention. Now, there's a lot to cover in this chapter. I thought about uh, I thought about dividing this into two sermons, but I opted not to do that. But I do promise to have you out of here by one o'clock today. So we're going to be here. I hope you brought a snickle, Snickers. Okay. No, really, we do have 37 verses and there's a lot for us to go. So I'm going to jump right in with kind of this first lesson about the Lord's discipline. The Lord's discipline came at the peak of Nebuchadnezzar's power. The Lord's discipline came at the peak of Nebuchadnezzar's power. Look at verses 1 through 4. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar, again, this is him writing, to the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. We'll pause there. So first you notice immediately 
that this chapter of Daniel's book is actually a copy of a letter that King Nebuchadnezzar had written to all of the people in his kingdom. This very well could have been kind of like the king's press release. He'd been absent from the kingdom, been absent from the throne for seven years, but has now returned. And his return may have been every bit as unexpected as his departure was seven years earlier. But you can imagine the questions that were being asked and the rumors that were being spread and the stories being told concerning his whereabouts. Where's Nebuchadnezzar? So I imagine that this is kind of the official statement given to the people to kind of answer their questions. You'll also notice that the king addresses the peoples, nations, and men of every language. Nebuchadnezzar wanted as many people as possible to hear this announcement. If he were alive today, the king would have scheduled a primetime press conference for TV and radio and probably on Facebook Live. And he would have used Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and any other social media venue that would have been available. He wanted everybody to hear about this. And he begins with a blessing. He says, may you prosper greatly. I want to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. And we have to pause here and say, whoa, what happened? Because that's a pretty radical change for Nebuchadnezzar, right? I mean, in chapters one through three, this was the king that was threatening to kill people and destroy their homes if he didn't get what he wanted. I mean, something has, something significant has changed, and he declares this right from the start. The text doesn't say this, but I imagine the shift in the king's disposition, his attitude, was so surprising that people were probably on the edge of their seats wanting to hear the explanation. What has happened? And the king relays to, to the people that it all started one day when he was at home, in his palace, contented and prosperous. The subtle message here is that Nebuchadnezzar had reached a point in his leadership where he had achieved all of his objectives. The enemies around him were subdued. His armies had come back home. His kingdom was experiencing peace. The economy was booming. Everyone was carrying a picture of Nebuchadnezzar in their wallet. You know what I mean? He had arrived. This was it. He had achieved all that he wanted. The Lord's discipline came when the king was at the peak of his performance. He was at the top of his game, reminding us that God can reach even the greatest of men when they feel most secure and invulnerable. God can still reach them. And, and God often chooses the timing so that the discipline is more quickly recognized as having come from the Lord. And here's what I mean by that. If Nebuchadnezzar had been at war, if he had been under financial hardship, if he was struggling to accomplish even the smallest of his goals, if his kingdom was struggling, then this experience may have been viewed as just another piece of bad luck in a long string of bad luck. When it rains, it pours, he would have said. But God wanted Nebuchadnezzar to feel the impact 
and to know with absolute certainty that this was not just another piece of bad luck. This was the hand of God. And so God brought the affliction at the peak of Nebuchadnezzar's power while he was at home in his palace, contented and prosperous. You know, success and prosperity can lead us to have feelings of security and invulnerability. Material success can lead us to believe that we have attained God's favor and that he is pleased with us, and so he's pouring out material blessing on us. And sometimes God does bless us in, you know, in those ways with material abundance. But we have to be really careful here because success can distort our view of reality. It can blind us to the truth. Remember, God had been trying to reveal himself to the king and to show him his sin. But the king's success and his desire to protect his power had been blinding him to the sin in his life, even though Daniel had repeatedly tried to get him to see God's sovereignty. And we must never turn a blind eye to the sin in our lives. So now, God was about to break through with Nebuchadnezzar. And we get to our second lesson. The second lesson is the Lord's discipline brings disruption in order to get our attention. The Lord's discipline brings disruption in order to get our attention. Look at verses 5 through 18. The king writes, I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying on my, in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven, and he called out in a loud voice, "'Cut down the tree and trim off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit.'" Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict. 
so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So like chapter 2, the Lord sends his warning to Nebuchadnezzar again in a dream. And as I reminded you a couple of weeks ago, in the ancient world, dreams were considered significant because they were often viewed as predictions of the future, or at least possible predictions of the future. So when a king had a dream, that dream might be about his kingdom's future, so he would seek to determine its meaning as quickly as possible so that he could take appropriate action if there was still time. And now, in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has had another dream that's made him afraid. So again, like he did in chapter 2, the king summons all the wise men of Babylon to be brought before him to interpret the dream. And when the magicians and enchanters and astrologers and diviners came, the king told them the dream, but they could not interpret it. You see all of that in verse 7. Now, the king says that his wise men could not interpret the dream for him. But when you consider the earlier outbursts of rage in the earlier chapters, his orders to execute wise men, throwing people into fiery furnaces, tearing down their homes, I get the distinct feeling the wise men knew what the interpretation was, but they were afraid to give it. They were afraid for their lives. They had no idea how the king would respond, and no one wanted to take that chance. It's not that they couldn't interpret the dream in, an, in a lack of ability. It's that they couldn't do it for fear of the king. They were terrified. And then finally in verse 8, it says Daniel arrived in the king's presence. Daniel walks in the room. And I think all the other wise men breathed a sigh of relief. Oh, thankfully Daniel's here. Hey, look, look, Daniel's here. You know, everybody's, all, everybody's relieved. And the king is too. Daniel will know what the dream means, and so the king tells him the dream. So in this dream, the king is depicted first as a tree, large tree touching the sky, visible to the ends of the earth, beautiful leaves, abundant fruit, provided food and shelter for animals and birds. The size of the Babylonian kingdom had become quite large. Some scholars believe that we're about 30 years into Nebuchadnezzar's reign at this point. So he's been doing this now for about three decades. The Babylonian kingdom had become quite large. Its influence and power were felt around the world. And those who were not influenced by it had certainly heard of it. It's kind of like Facebook. Not everybody's on Facebook, but everybody's heard of it, right? Everyone had heard of Babylon. And then an angel appeared in the dream ordering the tree to be cut down, remove its branches, strip the leaves, scatter the fruit, but leave the stump in the ground, bind it with iron and bronze, but leave it there. And now the imagery in the dream, the imagery changes from that of a tree to that of a person. And the messenger goes on and says, the man is sentenced to live amongst the animals and even to be given the mind of an animal for seven years. 
And the messenger reveals in the dream that this is being done so that it might be known that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. And again, we see all of that in verse 17. Whatever this dream means, Daniel hasn't interpreted it yet, but whatever this dream means, it certainly has the king's attention. The giant tree is about to be cut down, its branches removed, the leaves stripped, the fruit scattered. And if that tree in this dream represents either Nebuchadnezzar personally or his kingdom, then this is devastating. This is devastating. And any king worth his salt would want to understand the meaning of the dream as quickly as possible so that they could take appropriate action to either protect himself or his kingdom. The dream was sent to get Nebuchadnezzar's attention. And it worked. It worked. Lesson number three is that the Lord's discipline exposes our sin and calls us to righteousness. The Lord's discipline exposes our sin and calls us to righteousness. Look at verses 19 to 27. It says, Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, My Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field and having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air. You, O king, are that tree. You have become great and strong, and your greatness has grown till it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live like wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, O king. This is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord, the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. When Daniel heard the king described the dream to him. He was saddened by it. Many scholars believe, and I agree with them, that over the years, I think Daniel has developed a friendship with Nebuchadnezzar, having served in his court for decades. And Daniel genuinely likes him. 
Daniel hesitated to give the interpretation to the king because it's a warning of the coming humiliation of his friend. Now, it is God's will, and it is necessary, yes, to all of that, but that doesn't make it any easier for Daniel to deliver the news. But the king encourages him. Don't let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. And so Daniel reveals the interpretation. The tree does represent Nebuchadnezzar. And just as the tree is large and strong and visible to the whole earth, so Nebuchadnezzar has grown powerful and influential. He is ruling the world. But he has failed to acknowledge again the Most High is sovereign over the kingdom. He just won't bend the knee. He still believes his greatness is a result of his own doing. And therefore God has decreed that the king will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals, eating grass like cattle and living out in the open fields until such time that he acknowledges that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men, including the kingdom of Babylon. And it will take seven years for his arrogance to be broken. Seven years. But when it is, and when Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges that heaven rules, God will restore the throne of Babylon to him. And as Daniel courageously um, interprets this dream, he calls the king to repentance and righteousness. You see this in verse 27. He says to the king, therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins. That's repentance. Renounce your sins by doing what is right. That's righteousness. And renounce your wickedness. That's repentance. By being kind to the oppressed. That's righteousness. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. Daniel clearly wants the king to avoid what's coming, if possible. So he urges him to repent and change his ways. That's not a popular message for, um, for Daniel to give to a king. But Daniel wouldn't hold back. And he would, he would tell his friend what he needed him to hear. This dream is a warning that God's judgment is coming, Nebuchadnezzar. The messenger has announced that it has been decreed, but I think Daniel is hopeful that it might still be avoided. Maybe we can still avoid this. And if anyone here thinks that God is overreacting and being just a little bit harsh on Nebuchadnezzar, let me remind you that Nebuchadnezzar had had several chances to humble himself before Daniel's God, but had repeatedly failed and refused to do so. The king's first dream in, Chan, in uh, Daniel 2, Daniel had said to the king, there is a God in heaven who interprets dreams. Your wise men can't do that. Only God can do that, and he can make known what no man could know. And Daniel also made it clear that while Nebuchadnezzar was that head of gold in chapter 2, it was only because the God of heaven had allowed him to be so. Then in chapter 3, Daniel's God had rescued Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the furnace and proved that his power exceeded even the laws of nature. 
Had the king not seen it for himself, he probably wouldn't have believed it. For those three guys came out of the furnace and their hair had not been singed, their robes had not been scorched, and there wasn't even a smell of fire on them. But so hot was the fire when they were thrown in that the men who carried them up died from the heat. But God miraculously saved them. And in each of these situations, Nebuchadnezzar admitted that the God of Israel was impressive. But he wouldn't humble himself and acknowledge God as the most high God, the one true God. He just wouldn't do it. And so discipline is coming. The fourth lesson we learn is that the Lord's discipline is gracious and firm. The Lord's discipline is gracious and firm. Looking at verses 28 to 33 here. This says, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? And the words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge the Most High as sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. And immediately... What had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Verse 29 tells us that after Daniel interprets the dream for the king, an entire year passes. A whole year. And this is what I mean when I say that the Lord's discipline is gracious. I believe the Lord gave the king a year, a full year, to repent and change his ways, just as as Daniel had urged the king to do. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, but he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The Lord was being gracious and patient, wanting the king and giving the king time to repent. But a full year later, full year, the king is on the roof of his palace and he says, is not this the great Babylon that I have built by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? And there he goes again exalting himself, admiring himself, boasting in himself. God had waited patiently for an entire year, and still the only thing Nebuchadnezzar bows down in front of is a full-length mirror. You know what I mean by that? Just worships himself. And the God of heaven says, enough, enough. You see this in verse 33. This is what I mean when I say that the Lord's discipline is firm. He says enough, and the text says, while the words were still on Nebuchadnezzar's lips. The words were still on his lips, and the punishment that he had been warned of came upon him. And immediately, verse 33 says, immediately 
these things happened. Friends, can we pause here in the story for just a minute? Many of us read a chapter like Daniel chapter 4, and I think we see ourselves as Daniel in this story. Isn't that true? But the truth is, if we have ears to hear it, is that we are Nebuchadnezzar in this story. And if that's the case, there are questions that we should be asking ourselves as we go through this story. We should be asking ourselves questions like this. God attempted several times to get Nebuchadnezzar to humble himself and acknowledge God's sovereignty. Have you humbled yourself and surrendered your, your life to the Lord? Have I done that? Have you done that? Another question. What has God been trying to communicate to you in recent days? Remember in the story, God had repeatedly, time and time again, been trying to get Daniel or get Nebuchadnezzar to see God as the sovereign king over the kingdoms of men. What has God been repeatedly trying to get you to acknowledge or admit or submit yourself to? Are you yielded before the Lord? Are you teachable? Can the Holy Spirit bring these things to your mind and into your heart and, and will you be responsive to those things? And are you keeping yourself in a position of surrender? Here's another one. Nebuchadnezzar refused to respond to God's teaching through Daniel. I'm wondering if there's any teaching from God's word that you have knowingly been refusing to accept. Maybe it came through some devotions you read uh, at home one morning. Maybe it came up in your small group or in a Bible study or Sunday school class or maybe even a Sunday morning sermon. Is there any teaching from God's word, any prompting from his spirit that you have been ignoring or just saying, I, I don't want to deal with that right now. I'll just later. I'm not going to deal with that right now. Because here's the thing. God finally had to resort to discipline with Nebuchadnezzar. And it is my prayer that each of our hearts would be humble and teachable and yielded and responsive to anything that the Lord would want to say to us so that his discipline won't be necessary. Because I don't want you to experience that. And so what I'm going to do, this might be a little unusual, but I'm actually going to give you a moment right now of just a minute of silence. And I'm going to ask you to just, in the privacy of your own heart, to go before the Lord and ask him if there's anything that he has been trying to bring to your attention. And maybe you could use the words that Samuel used in the Old Testament when Samuel said, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Okay, so I'm just going to give you a moment of silence so you can go before the Lord and ask.
And God, I pray that you would find each of our hearts yielded this morning, fully surrendered to you. In Jesus' name. Let's go to lesson number five. Lesson number five. The affliction lasted until the lesson was learned. The the affliction or the Lord's discipline lasted until the lesson was learned. Look at verses 34 and 35. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. And then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? The purpose of the Lord's discipline was to bring Nebuchadnezzar to the point of acknowledging that Daniel's God was the God of the universe, the only God. Not just impressively powerful, but omniscient, not just a revealer of mysteries and the knower of secrets, but omniscient. And no relief would come until this lesson was learned. And it worked. It worked. It took seven years, but it worked. Nebuchadnezzar's view has changed completely. No longer is he just one God amongst many. Look again, look again at verses 2 and 3 that opened up the chapter. It says, It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders the Most High God has performed for me. How great are His signs. How mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. And then these verses, verse 34 and 35, he says, I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? And then jump ahead a verse to verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, Praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. The Lord's discipline for Nebuchadnezzar had a very specific purpose for his life. And the same is true for you and I. The Lord's discipline, the Lord never disciplines just to bring pain. He never disciplines out of anger or just to get even because you made him mad. Never does that. Our God is a good and loving Father, and His discipline is always for our good, to stretch our faith or to strengthen our trust or to deepen our character. But here's the truth. He will persist until those lessons are learned. The Lord will persist until those lessons are learned. Sixth and finally, the Lord's discipline was followed immediately by mercy. The Lord's discipline was followed immediately by mercy. Look at verse 36. At the same time, at the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. And here's my point with this, is having accomplished its purpose, 
the discipline was immediately withdrawn and replaced by mercy. The immediacy is seen in those words at the same time. Everything that had been stripped away was restored to Nebuchadnezzar. His honor, his splendor, his throne, all of it was restored. As soon as he humbled himself and acknowledged God's sovereignty, as soon as he praised and exalted and glorified the God of heaven, then God was pleased to give all those things back to him. Though it can be difficult to see and maybe even harder to understand, especially in the moment, God used discipline to help the king face reality and acknowledge his sin and turn to God. The discipline helped Nebuchadnezzar do all of that. And as a result, Nebuchadnezzar received mercy and forgiveness and I believe eternal life. I believe in chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar really did give his heart to the Lord. God is loving, gracious, merciful, and sovereign over the universe. He knew what Nebuchadnezzar needed, and he loved him. And he knows what you need, and he loves you. And he knows what I need, and he loves me. And sometimes he will use difficult circumstances to accomplish his purposes in our lives. Like a skilled gem cutter cutting a precious gem. But having accomplished it, we know that mercy will soon follow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to surrender ourselves again to you today. To acknowledge that you are sovereign. That you rule and reign. Your dominion is forever. Your kingdom lasts forever. And everything you do is right. Lord, we don't understand all that goes on. We don't understand all that we see and how your hand is at work in all these things. But we trust you. You have proved yourself faithful. And so I pray that you would um, draw us near. I pray that you would open our hearts so that we are teachable and yielded and responsive when you teach us and prompt us. Maybe we be responsive to your spirit. And God, I pray that should circumstances arrive where you believe in your wisdom that discipline is best, God, may our hearts be ready to receive it and quick to respond so that the discipline doesn't have to be lengthened or intensified. God, we want to love you. We want to walk with you. We want to become like Christ. And so we want, uh, we invite your spirit to be at work in our hearts. And we pray that this would be so in Jesus' name. Amen.